she's a doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Dobek, and she's a dietitian. Hey, I'm Hannah Schuyler, and together we are the, the Doctor Dietitian Collab. Hey, Laura, did you I like that love intro it. there? <laughs> that was awesome. Uh-huh. Oh yes. Well, welcome to the podcast, Laura. I am yes. so honored you invited it's me. So this is great. You. Oh. We are so excited to have you and that we can make this happen. Um, do you want to quickly give a little bit of an introduction sure, to yourself? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Laura Grabo, and believe it or not, I have been working in obesity medicine as a therapist for 20 years. I started in 2003, wow. and I do what I call the headwork piece to medical and surgical weight loss, which I know we're going to talk more about today. I'm coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, but I work all over. I own my own practice. So what do I do in my own practice? Um, I have I see individual therapy patients. I also do some uh, bariatric coaching. I also have created and launched my own course. I do group work. I do um, professional speaking, not only to patients, but also to my peers. So a little bit of everything. And I come on wonderful podcasts like this because I'm very passionate about getting head work skills out to people who need them. Oh my gosh. And not only that, you're going to be um, hosting our support group in July. Yes. July 19th. So we're going to be really um, heavily promoting that because our patients who have the Zoom link to get into this exclusive space and have access to you are in for a treat because you're going to be talking about the summer slide. Tell us more about what you're thinking about for that. Well, what I've learned, and I'll be honest, like I have learned the most from patients. Patients are the experts in their lives. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned this past 20 years is that summer is often a time that can be high risk for sliding into pre-surgical unhealthy behaviors. Um, You think that it's not, but it is often a time my patients struggle. And so I believe in the power of education. And so I've named it. I call it the bariatric summer slide. And I want to talk a little bit about why it happens and then what to do about it. As you get to know me, that's what I'm super passionate about. I can share with you a lot of knowledge, but I want my patients to know what can I do today when I end my time with Laura? Is there something I can apply right now? And you'll end with some managing summer slide strategies. I love that. I love, we always talk about that with meetings, with work, with all sorts of stuff. Like we always want to walk away with like an action plan because, you know, a conversation or goals without a plan is, Mm -hmm. it's useless. So I think that's awesome that you're, you know, that really is the focus of, of, you know, kind of what you walk away from sessions with. Yeah, it's truly a waste of time if you if you don't if you don't um, do something about it. I mean, meetings are great. We just beautifully articulated all of our goals and strategies and all these big fancy company speak words and and just even in your own life, like I I, I want to get healthy. Well, what does that mean and how do you do that? And um, you know, we are very excited to, um, to bring you on, especially now. We just um, have done a recent podcast with a patient who is in the very, very final stages of being a pre-op patient. Her surgery is next week. And she talked a lot about coping with food from an emotional standpoint. And we keep, basically, we've done almost 40 of these podcasts now. We've been doing this for over half of a year. We are just seeing though every single topic we do, whether it be nutrition related, even constipation somehow, sex, you name it, everything has the mental health component. And we haven't 
dove in appropriately there. So I really want um, to hear from you about just the emotional side, the coping side, the mental health side, and how do we help people to really just navigate those most challenging Absolutely. waters? So first of all, thank you for allowing me to be the first mental health person on your amazing podcast. Thank you for that. And even though I've been working in obesity medicine for 20 years, I do feel mental health is still the missing piece of the treatment plan. Um, and I hope one day that I can stop saying it's missing. Um, I believe our patients get a lot of education on the tool they're, they're choosing. And I know I believe in your clinic, you do both medical and surgical weight loss, correct? So oh, yeah. they get a lot of education on their tool. Um, they get a lot of education on movement. They get a lot of education on nutrition. Hannah, that's your expertise. Mm-hmm. And that answers the how, right? How am I going to treat my disease of obesity? But you have to go deeper. What I've learned to have lifelong success, and I believe this is what your patient has been talking about with you, the one who's getting so close to her surgery date, is why do I eat? You need tools. We need to not only answer how do I treat my disease of obesity, but why do I eat? Because all of us have, all of us, we struggle with obesity or not, all of us have an emotional relationship with food. And the day you go in the operating room, that relationship is changed. Okay. Mm. And mm. to use your patient's words that, um, you know, I cope with food, you know, she's not alone, right? Probably all of us kind of mm-hmm. cope with food some, but not all of us have the disease of obesity. So there's like multifaceted things going on. But when I, um, you know, train to be a therapist, like, you know, there's probably like, nutrition 101 and surgery 101. Well, there's therapy 101. What we are trained in is when our clients come to us and there's some unhealthy coping skills present, we never take them away right away, right? So first of all, you work with the client that they can see like the skill isn't working for them, which is probably why they're coming to your office anyways. Um, They have some behavior that's not helpful. Two, once they realize like, huh, I don't, I don't know if this emotional eating thing is really that great for me. We start talking about, well, what are some other things you could try? And what are some of the needs you think you're meeting with emotional need? And is there emotional eating? Is there healthier ways you can do that? And we start practicing and you get a homework assignment and they practice and then they come back to your therapy session or the group. You can do this in group as well. How did that work for you? Well, guess what? When you have bariatric surgery, you don't do that. And there's often a need, right? There are medical needs. Obesity is a disease. We need to treat it. I do think often the behavioral education, my piece, is much more impactful post-surgery anyways. Um, And so, but that coping skill is often taken out immediately. And we need to educate patients about that. That's why we need a mental health person to say, okay, Right. And so if we get that call, so like I said, I've worked with bariatric patients a long time. I'm in private practice now, but I used to be in a very large integrated practice here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And if a patient is calling that first week or second week saying they're so hungry after bariatric surgery, we know from a physiological standpoint, they cannot be physically hungry. They're emotionally hungry. So then they would get referred to me and providing that education and that sort of thing. So Wow, there's so much I can talk about, but that's my role. Like <laughs> no, I call it how to the missing piece. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the thing about you that 
is just remarkable is that you just like really get it, you know, like, and I think that you talk to people in a way that, that just totally demonstrates that you, you get it, you're empathetic, you're compassionate. And when you said, man, I hate the fact that here we are, I've been doing this for 20 years, all day, every day, grinding this out, but yet there's still such a scarcity in this key pillar to the overall success of the the patient struggling with this disease state or just struggling, you know, with this whole thing in general. So like, how do we, how do, how do you scale you? Like, how do you, how do you help more people? How do you, like you said, you're, you're helping to train other bariatric therapists in this very, very specific niche of, of therapy and mental health work. But like, how do we do this? Like, how do we do this better? I think it, you know, it starts when, when you look at the team and when we look at the team of we have to not underestimate the role. I think for too long when it comes to bariatric surgery, and I think we're just starting to get there with obesity medicine and medical weight loss, but it's been, we need a surgeon, we need an internist, we need a dietitian, we need an exercise physiologist. And the only thing we need psych for mental health for is that pre-op surgical veil, which is important. It's important, but it's not the most important Okay. because obesity is a chronic disease. Okay. <laughs> and, lifetime, you need lifetime treatment. And what we're learning, what I've learned from my own practice with patients, what the research will support, my intervention is much more impactful post-surgery than it is pre-surgery. Now, if there's pre-significant, you know, some significant psychiatric concerns, some significant substance abuse concerns before surgery, of course, right? We need to address those before. Um, But I think it's, you know, educating the surgeons, that we need this. Um, obviously, emotional eating is the number one reason our bariatric patients will gain weight or regain loss weight. We see the same with medical weight loss. So when we start talking about outcome, that we need to be giving, we want to ha- give our patients every tool possible to have success with treating their disease of obesity. And if we don't talk about my piece, the head work piece, you're not giving them every tool. It's like showing up to play baseball without a ball. Mm, yeah, mm. that makes sense. Because, you know, it's it's interesting. People always talk about physical health versus mental health. And it's kind of like, why are those two things separated into right. two categories? Like your mental health is part of your right. physical health and vice versa. Like they interplay so much. So it's just kind of like, why do we allow that to be this, its own category over here that's separate like your brain is part of your body you know so right exactly and I would I would imagine too another probably barrier for this would be insurance as well and and accessibility of mental health resources right and Um, yeah yeah. you probably know more than I do Dr. Dovic um, that post-surgery I believe insurance at least in the past would pay for a dietitian visit possibly an exercise visit but a visit with someone like me nope Right. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted to really um, tackle that. And we have a motto over here. We are, we are pleasantly, but persistent. We are pleasantly Mm -hmm. persistent. And I really, I'm very open about it. We need to rock the whole way we're treating it because the current system is this feeling patients and people have of getting herded into an operating room and then what do I do now? Or even like, well, forget about it. You know, the pricing in the U S is so expensive. I'm going to Mexico. So I even signed up knowing I wasn't going to get any aftercare. And I, I was like, I just, I just need this tool so bad, but they're like, you're saying there's so much about it. So the one thing that you mentioned that I really, uh, I want to like focus on is that the pre-op evaluation, the psyche evaluation, the check in the box, 
And I think a lot of times, unfortunately, it is just that. It's just like, get this requirement done. It doesn't, I have never felt that any psych evaluation has has really truly helped mm. me. Like in, in one way or another, like, okay, I feel like there's no significant risk. I approve them for a surgery. Great, whatever. But I wish that we could, and I think we can, persistently go together, bundle all of these services together so that there's not all this administrative burden, go to the payers and say, you need to have, same with Hannah, I'm sure she mm -hmm. could say this, after surgery is when nutrition yeah. is most important. You don't know how your taste will change, what you'll tolerate, mm -hmm. what, you'll, what your preferences are. Same with the mental health. You have no idea. Like it's the fear of the unknown. What will I feel like, think like, um, how will I deal with the body dysmorphia and all the other emotional things that come with it. Um, we need to do therapy, and ongoing head work after surgery, period, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. you, you have, have to. to. I think it's so, so right? critical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And then let's talk about that, that, that early post-op period. And I've told you my analogy on this before. And I just want to see, like you said, people call into the office, I'm hungry, what's going on? And you're like, all right, well, it's actually not physiologically possible. So it's, it's, it's my turn, guys. I'll take this one. Mm -hmm. But... I feel like there's this analogy of patients feeling like they're in this very uh, deep, committed relationship to food, and they almost like feel bad for it, like they're like leaving it behind, or it's almost that phenomenon, I got to finish my plate because it's kind of like embedded in me. But it's like this relationship, like a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and it was like really good. And then abruptly you break up. It's like you go through this divorce, and it's like I wasn't mentally ready to give that thing up almost like a, it's a real person. It's like a real part of you. So like, how do you navigate those early um, post-op period where it is just the most difficult? Yeah. Well, the first so? thing is that you're bringing it up, right? Because what you're describing is grief. Mm. Our patients will grieve their relationship with food. And one, they feel bad about it because they're like, I should be so happy. I find I was counting down to my surgery date. Mm -hmm. I got through all those hoops. Why on earth am I not happy? Because exactly, put your age in, right? So I've been sharing a lot on my social media that I'm going to be 50 this month. And so if I was having oh, bariatric yes. surgery this month, I would say for 50 years, food and I have had a relationship. And, and it is a relationship, right? An emotional relationship. Food is friend. Food is comfort. Food is celebration. Food has always been there for me. Food is how I've avoided conflict. That can be a whole nother, you know, what role does food play in your life? That could be a whole nother podcast. But that relationship changes and it is a breakup and you will grieve. And this is one of the favorite, one of the favorite things I teach on is I call it losing more than weight. Um, the waves of grief and loss mm -hmm. on the bariatric journey, on the weight loss journey. And so Let's think of those. And, and back in the day, Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross called them stages. We now know they're waves. We don't go through them, one, two, three, four, five. But the first one is shock and denial. Oftentimes our patients are like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Right? Like, I, I, what? oh my gosh, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I can't get protein and hydration in. Like, I don't know. Right, right in the beginning. Second thing she talked about um, so I got so uh, shock and denial, oh bargaining, um, depression, which I'm going to call sadness. Oh no, anger, depression, acceptance. I had to do it right, real quick in my head here. Um, so <laughs> I think one recognizing. I think the whole team needs to recognize these waves are happening for our patient. I think our teams need to know they're happening, 
And of course, their loved ones need to know they're happening and our patients need to know. So shock and denial. And then um, I believe anger is next or bargaining. I'm, you know, you're going to they, they kind of run into each other. So let's do anger. And you may get angry that you can't eat the way that you wanted to eat. And your portions are smaller and you can't be like everybody else. And you may have heard from your team that this is not a cure, but deep down you were really hoping it was a cure. And you're angry that you still have to work at it and you still have to think about food, right? Oftentimes we'll see our patients bargaining and maybe this doesn't happen so much in the beginning because you can't physiologically doing it, but I call this testing the edges. What does bargaining look like on our weight management journey? Do I really have to live all the time like I'm a bariatric surgery patient? What can I get away with? Could like maybe I live one way during the week in a different way on the weekend? I'm going to try that and I'm going to test the edges a little bit. And what happens is when I talk about that is when we're bargaining, I want you to envision it's summertime. Like, let's say you had two rafts, right? Rafts in the water. And, you know, you're playing a game with your kids or something and you're trying to like put a foot on each raft and see if you can balance. That's testing the edges. What's going to happen? Your rafts are going to go farther and farther apart and you're eventually going to fall in. Are you going to grab the raft that's been holding you up for 50 years or the one that it's only been a couple months since surgery? You're going to go back right. to that old behavior. Mm. It may have been unhealthy behavior, but it was comfortable and you know it. Sadness. Mm. Mm-hmm. You miss it. You miss your relationship with food. And that's very, very normal. Um, your relationships may change. People you thought would be your greatest supporters aren't. And you grieve that. And there's sadness there. And then I promise you, eventually you get to acceptance of like, okay, I have the chronic disease of obesity. I have the best tool on board, but it was not a cure. And I need to make sure I continue to live as a bariatric surgery patient, onboarding all the tools the rest of my life. Um, And then you'll slip out of acceptance again. You go in and out of the waves, but you know you've made progress when you spend a longer amount of time in acceptance. And here's another kicker of why back to I cope with food. All those emotions I just mentioned, like shock, anger, sadness, right? Um, even the even acceptance, happiness. You've been using food to soothe those emotions. And now you can't anymore. So I remember having one of the surgeons present when I taught on this and he was like, Oh, now I know why they're so angry and irritable. Like I thought I just gave them the best tool ever to make them so happy. One, they're grieving. And two, guess how our patients will really all of us often, what do we turn to during grief? Food, right? And that's been taken away. So we see our patients experiencing emotions at a greater intensity because they're no longer using food to soothe them down. Mm. You know, we've talked the last couple of podcasts about the early days and, you know, gosh, this is so, I'm all, I am waking up right now too. Uh I'm thinking about like, I tell them the night before surgery, you're anxious, you're worried, you're not really sleeping well. Like a lot of patients come into our practice now from out of town and they're in a hotel room. It's unfamiliar. Then the night after surgery, they have gas pains. So they're also like 
super exhausted. And so they're very emotionally like charged and weepy and crying. And, and I tell their loved one, like they're going to cry, but, and I, and I thought it was a mixture of like our basic needs not being met between like a little bit hungry and a lot of exhaustion, but actually, boy, that makes a lot of sense too, is that acute awareness. It's just almost the, the parallels to pregnancy. I always feel like are just so in, intense that it's almost like you have this baby and like for me, I've been very open with the infertility thing. And then you have it and you're like, I've never been happier. But you're like, you're like a mess. The progesterone is all over the place. You're just like, uh, just a weepy, exhausted mess. And you're not really happy. And it's like, I've never loved anything like this. I didn't feel that. And I think it's like that, like, oh, I should be so thrilled like everybody else. Like, look at all these people. And then, and then social media, that's a whole nother, you know, dimension that's mm -hmm. added that, well, they were smiling and walking 10,000 steps and, and doing all these things. How come I don't feel like that at all? Like I can barely get up. I can barely right. stand up. Right. I can't do it. And you guys can still see me, right? Okay, good. Yeah, I had yeah. something come in and my screen went off, but that's okay. I'm going to keep talking. Okay. Um, there. Okay, good. <laughs> that was so weird. So, um, you are that you are right on Dr. Dovic, right? Like it's, it's all of that too, right? New environment. Um, but again, think of how many hoops, and this is again, a whole nother podcast of what our patients have to go through to yes. get treatment for their disease. You don't have to do that with other diseases. Um, but all right. of the stress and everything they've been through. And oftentimes it, in this, this, um, is different per surgeon, but oftentimes they may be on more of a liquid um, liquid diet, and um, so we've already changed their changed their um, changed their relationship with food, even going into surgery, and so their emotions are all over the place because many times our patients don't even realize how much of an emotional eater they are until we take the food away. And so maybe when they went through stress before or they had worry and anxiety on a scale of one to 10, they let their anxiety get up to a three and then they would eat, right? They'd eat that comfort food and they mm. soothe with food, but now they can't do that pre-surgery or post-surgery. And so we have patients walking around feeling their emotions at an eight or a nine. And that's why someone are like, whoa, what's going on? That's what's going on. Right. And then it, we hope there's a person like me who can teach them the missing piece to tell them this is what's happening. And we're doing that right now with education. So many patients tell me, I never even thought about that. Of course, I'm grieving food. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. how are some ways I can name and show up to my feelings in non-food ways? Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a conversation I have with people, especially when, you know, they're, they're, tell me, you know, I had someone recently in our medical program who'd had regain and she's like, you know, I switched to working from home and I, you know, so I'm, I'm close to my refrigerator. I get frustrated with work and I go out and I find myself just standing there like, like completely unaware that I have even made the walk wow. from, you know, the desk to the kitchen and I'm standing in front of the open fridge, you know, and it's like kind of waking up and then it's like, so then I have to, eat, it's like I eat and it's like, you know, so we did, we talked about some different, I was like, you know, walk exactly. out to your mailbox. Like if it's just, you have to step away from the desk, walk out to your mailbox. You know, um, I always joke, I always tell people pick up mm -hmm. knitting, you know, like pick up something to do with your hands too. Cause for me, I know a lot of people also have that kind of 
tactile relationship mm-hmm. with food. You know, we think about whether it's the chewing or it's some, having something to do with your hands. I think we're so used to, you know, mm-hmm. you're watching TV at night and a lot of times we're not just watching TV. We're watching TV exactly. and eating or, you know, and something else. It's like, do something else with, you know, have a, get a fidget toy. Right. I don't know, like it, something simple like and that. And if they had you know. a counselor or a therapist like me on their team, educate them that eating behavior is not automatic. Mm-hmm. It feels automatic. Right. When they go into the kitchen and take Mm -hmm. the food out of the refrigerator or munch while they're watching TV, eating is not automatic. The thought always comes first. Things that are automatic are obviously our heart beating, blinking, digestion. I'm so glad I didn't have to get up today and say, heart, please start beating today. Like it's working. It's doing its thing. Yeah. Yeah. Every time, every time we eat, we have a thought that comes first. And when we choose to eat, it's a permission giving thought. Right. And um, if, if you're thinking, no, Laura, I don't know if I buy this. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. My car was just like in the drive through. I don't think I had a thought or I was just eating the donuts in the break room. I don't think I had a thought. If that was true, right? If eating really was automatic, you would not only eat the chocolate chip cookie, you would eat the plate that the chocolate chip cookies on, right? So we know when to right. stop. So with that said, one of the things I'm very passionate about is teaching our patients' cognitive behavioral therapy skills on how to catch that thinking, and I often call it stinking thinking, catch it, check it, Mm. change it, right? So working Mm. the three C's of cognitive therapy, working with that patient who's triggered by being home and the refrigerator's right there, so there's the trigger, slowing down, what's the thought? It's probably some stinking thinking, I deserve this, I'm stressed, If no one sees me eat it, it doesn't count. Just a little won't hurt. And then how to reframe that, how to talk back to that, to then change the behavior. Those are the tools our patients aren't getting. I'm Mm -mm. no. And it, and it's, and it's hard. I mean that a lot of our patients are not eating enough during the day and they're skipping meals and then they're legitimately hungry. And then the thought almost it's like the conscious thought and the survival kind of mechanisms I always feel like are at war because I know better but I don't care like I need this and like you said the stinking thinking that is such a good way of putting it that there is just such a a drive or a self-validation as to why I deserve it I had a horrible day at work like get the bottle of wine open I'm coming home like I need this I deserve this or it was an awesome day savor the champagne we deserve to celebrate and I can you know I can do this a little bit like you said the weekend warrior versus on the weekday I'll be good on the weekend I'll be I can do whoever I am boy I mean there's just so many things here and to get back to break through those habits of that overwhelming obsessive thought like you're like okay there's the thought I've recognized it I know my triggers but it's like I want pretzels I want pretzels I just could use a little bit of pretzels while I'm watching this like how do you like finally be like, I I, can't, I I gotta give in. Like, I gotta take this edge off. It's so overwhelming. Like, how do you like make that voice mm-hmm. go away? That's, that's it's hard. It's very, very hard. And um, yeah, so I teach on this as well. The argument in your head, I need the pretzels. I don't want the pretzels. I want the pretzels. I don't want the pretzels. I want the pretzels. I don't want the pretzels. And um, that patients will often call it the devil and the angel, right? Like I have someone, one on my shoulder, stay on plan, go off plan. They're probably not using those words. It's more, you know, I want to eat it. I don't want to eat it. 
They've actually done some research on this. Actually, Judy Beck, she's one of the leading people in the CBT world, cognitive behavioral therapy, because she's like, I heard it all the time. She's like, I heard it all the time. You know, Laura, finally, I just ate the pretzels because I felt better, right? Like, at least I wasn't thinking about it anymore. And so she started to do some research like, okay, did the pretzels really make them feel better? Yeah, we could do a whole nother podcast on that with like what pretzels do to our brain. But what she found out, it was the decision they made to stop arguing with themselves that made themselves feel better, right? So Mm, yes, no, yes, I want it. No, I want it. No, yes, yes, no, yes, no. I'm just going to have it. Soon as they made that decision to stop arguing, the upset level goes down and they feel better. And then they eat the pretzels and then we'll get our whole nother podcast material about eating those type of foods. But just as the decision to eat the pretzels made you feel better. The decision not to eat the pretzels makes you feel better. So I spend a lot of my time teaching patients on how to stop this argument. I want you to think about things we do every day, like brushing our teeth. Could you imagine if we got up every day and had an argument about brushing our teeth? Well, I don't know if I want to do it today. Maybe I'll just like brush in the night and not the morning, or maybe I'll do the top or do the bottom. Like, no, that's gross. Like, There are certain things we do, like we just get up and brush our teeth. Another thing, like just do it. Mm -hmm. Putting our seatbelt on. Could you imagine when we get in the car, if we had to have this huge argument with ourselves, we would never do it because this this causes discomfort, this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We just do it. And so when you, if you can work on realizing that and just make the decision and often just say, I'm not doing it and leave the kitchen, like no choice, no pretzels, and then get involved in something else. Don't keep arguing with yourself. You will feel better. We've all experienced this with movement when we want to be active. The hardest part is the argument we have in our head, right? I don't want to. It's too hot. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll just work out a little bit extra. I'm too tired, right? Back and forth, back and forth. What happens when you finally just say, you know what? I just got to do five minutes. I just have to do 10 minutes. Right. And you made the decision to stop arguing with yourself and the discomfort went away. It works. I promise. Did that answer your question, Dr. Dovic? Yeah. Ah, yes, it does. I like that. Make a decision, own your decisions, go with it. Um, And then it becomes a habit in a good way. And I mean, like you said, everybody kind of like battles with this. And I just think about even myself and standing there in the kitchen with a fork. I'm like, stop eating, put it down. Mm -hmm. Why are you standing here? Why are you eating this? What are you doing? And then sometimes when you're in the moment, you're like, oh, well, at least I ate it all because now it's gone. And then tomorrow, I'm not going to have the same argument with myself because it doesn't exist. We've all been there. Until someone... Until somebody brings it in the house or you somehow bring it in your house. Like, I'm just going to stop down. I'm just going to get a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, I or like you're looking in the fridge and you're like, where is it? And you're like, screw it. I'm just going to go out and get it. It's like, what am I like? Why are you now you're in a car to go get this thing? Like you're making it like very challenging for yourself. That's something you don't really want to have. And it's, it's, it's really, really hard, I think. So, yeah, I mean, there is that early post-op, I think the, the grieving, then the kind of the ongoing and the habits that you set. Do you feel that there is something behind sort of how you, how you do with surgery in that first month or two that sets the stage for long-term? Or do you feel like 
if you had like kind of a rough first few months, you weren't really like on your game, is there a comeback story to be had even after surgery? Hmm. I have never been asked that question. I have to say in my experience, I think I've, I've seen both do well, right? Like those who have their tools and have onboarded from the beginning and then those that struggle. I mean, sometimes our patients experience unco- unexpected complications they had no control over, you know, and they still come back. Um, I, I hear more patients in the beginning who are worried that they've screwed up their whole bariatric journey, right? Um, like I broke my tool yeah. or they hit that normal um, three-week stall or five-week and you can yeah. speak to this oh and they're like, gosh. yep, see, I told you I was going to be the only that's one it. bariatric surgery didn't work for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important when you need to be around other patients or, or providers who can educate, no, this is normal. I get why you think that no other program has worked for you. So of course your brain is like, I've had 50 years Mm -hmm. of, yep, I was going to be the only one. The tool's not going to work for me. Mm -hmm. But that's where they need to trust their team and have a team um, that you can't screw it up. Um, And again, even farther out. And you probably feel this way too, Hannah. People's like, oh, my, my, my pouch is stretched or I've broken my tool. It's not working. And I always say, when you go back to living as a bariatric surgery patient, your tool will work for you. When you live as a sleeve yeah. patient, your tool will work. When you live as a bypass patient, your tool will work. Are you doing that? And again, it's back to are you using all the tools? And usually not. Usually some of their treatment tools they're not doing yeah. anymore. Doing anymore. They're, they're not recording, right? They're not using a food tracker. They're not going to group. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not getting enough protein, right? So... Guess what happens in other diseases when you stop using your treatment? Your symptoms come back, right? Same as with obesity. If you stop treatment, you will get your symptoms back and a symptom of obesity is regain, right? And so when people are struggling with regain, we need to give them more treatment and they need to get back to what works. So let's talk about treatment specifically from your standpoint. Do you feel like um, you talked about it's support is so helpful hearing other people's journeys. I'm not alone. I feel that too. There's strength in knowing that, again, you're not isolated on this island trying to go through this. And I think that that those patients who don't reach out for support in any any shape or form are the ones that don't that just don't do well. Mm -hmm. But so when it comes to your treatment, do you feel that the best is a more one on one approach? Is it? a more group approach, a support group, which there's all kinds of talk about doing another whole episode on something, or do you think it's a hybrid of all these things and each patient is different? Like how should we really tell our patients, go see Laura for the, this, this, and yeah. this? Like what, what should they so do? So I think um, it's a hybrid. I mean, not everybody needs individual therapy. I think I would start with group. Um, I believe in what I do. So I'm in therapy because I think therapy is just good self-care. But um, I think what will happen is you'll be in support group or you'll start realizing, oh, I'm grieving food or I'm having or my relationships are changing or a topic will come. Like, I need to talk more about that. I look as as the group support program. We kind of scratch the surface in support group. But if you want to dig deeper, that's when you go to individual therapy. Now, if you're struggling with a depression, right? So we know depression can be exacerbated after bariatric surgery. Often gets better. It can get worse. If you're struggling with binge eating disorder, this is a high risk factor for poor outcome Mm -hmm. after bariatric surgery. 
and it looks different. Binge eating disorder doesn't go away. It just looks different after bariatric surgery. Individual therapy. Okay. If you're struggling with transfer addiction, especially substance use disorder, alcohol use, therapy. So a little yeah. bit of both. Mm. All right. Sounds good. No, it's 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 all so 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 needed, yeah. and um, you know, Glennon Doyle. Are you're a, you're a fan of hers? Hard I things. Think, I think we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, we, can, we, we I text her that like every other day. <laughs> you did today, actually. In fact, she sure did. And I mean, we can. And when we're talking about our feelings, you said earlier, you know, there's this your feelings for so long have been muffled down to a level three. And then, then that's your trigger to, okay, I I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to, I don't want to do hard things. And so I'm going to make sure I don't, I mask that. Now you talk about this. Now we're blowing the roof off. We're feeling these big feelings and now we are feeling our feelings. And as Glennon put in her book, which kind of like made me like stop that, that whole chapter on like feelings are meant for feeling and how do you, how do you kind of like cope with that um, without going to another or, or way? Like, I know we talked about like going for a walk and those sorts of things. And, and, you know, those things might come, but like, how do you cope with those big feelings? And do you believe that all feelings are meant for feeling as glad? I absolutely in believe book? in that. And um, Dr. Dovik, I also want to compliment you on calling them big feelings. I don't believe we have positive and negative feelings. I think we've been saying that too long and we, there is no such thing as a negative feeling. There's big feelings, there's pleasant feelings, there's unpleasant feelings, there's comfortable feelings, there's uncomfortable feelings, but there's not positive and negative. Um, and so how do we, one, recognizing that this is something I have to work on, um, I don't, I, I mean, the whole emotional intelligence stuff and affect regulation didn't come out until early 90s. So there's many of us who were probably raised in homes that didn't get a lot of skills on naming and feeling feelings. Um, for many of our patients, um, naming and feeling feelings wasn't safe in their household. And so, again, starting that support group, you know, maybe my online course, um, But if you want to go deeper, individual therapy and some of my suggestions, what I've learned is first you have to develop a feeling vocabulary because I would often give the assignment, whether it be in a group session or an individual session, okay, I want you to do a food mood journal. I want you to write about how you're feeling when you're eating this week. And they'd come back to me with blank journals. (laughs) I'm like, okay, something's going on here because this is happening over and over. They're like, I don't know how, like, I didn't know how to write. And when you ask people to start naming some feeling words, you usually hear happy, mad, and sad. That's usually all they have. But there's so much more. There's Mm. lonely. There's anxious. Shame is a big one our patients experience. There's excitement. There's joy. There's anticipation. Um, And so I work with patients first with developing a feeling vocabulary. And that can certainly just be like Googling a feeling word list. But now there's an app out now called the How We Feel app. And that has been helping um, many of my patients that actually I learned from a patient. She brought it to her therapy session. <laughs> so yeah. she's like, oh, this is helping me. I'm like, okay, that's I good. Best things. A food mood journal. Well, I would love to, if there was like one thing that we could give to patients, I, I love that idea mm-hmm. of, 
giving them like, okay, we're always like, here's your protein tracker, your fluid tracker, take your vitamins, here's the mm-hmm. alarm, you know, like we're, we're, we're hitting all these checks. But, uh, and even sleep trackers, that's another one that I think is, you know, we don't talk about that as much, but man, I've never thought of a food mood journal where you really like stop and just like feel the feeling. And why am I, why am I trying to like, like stifle this thing down? You know, that's, that's a lot. Because let's say it's really normal. We don't want to feel the big ones. I mean, it's not like, yay, I can't wait to grieve. I can't wait to feel disappointment and sadness. Like I'd be really worried about you. But the only way to feel is to feel. And I teach my patients that feelings are not emergencies. You will get through them. Um, Emotional eating is about numbing and escaping. And transfer addiction is about numbing and escaping. And because I want my patients to have every tool for success, all of us are worth more than numbing or escaping. We need tools to cope through. Right? We need tools to cope through those hard days at work. We need tools to cope through a disappointment, right? Because the numbing and escaping eventually wears off, right? The numbing wears off, and now you have two things you're upset about. Whatever you were trying to escape and numb, and now you're mad at yourself because you went off plan and you got into your emotional eating roller coaster, right? And so I try to teach those skills, so like naming the feelings, and then, okay, what is this feeling telling me, right? Like our feelings are data, What do I need right now? What am I hungering after? You know what? After a hard day, it is so healthy that you want to decompress and put your feet up, right? Your feelings are worth more than French fries, okay? Your decompression needs are worth more than French fries. Are there other ways you can do that? Same with celebration. You said, good day. Let's get the champagne out. I love to celebrate. It's probably one of my favorite things I love to do. I was the mom who said, I don't craft, but I celebrate. Um, I love to celebrate and your celebration needs are worth so much more than food. And, you know, people think we're drowning our sorrows in chocolate chip cookies and we are, that's a component to emotional eating, but the research shows the actual number one feeling we eat for is happiness and joy. We love to feel the, keep the good feeling going. And we do that with food. We do it well with food. Again, let's celebrate. It's a healthy need. But let's do it in a healthier way. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I, I'm like keep going, keep <laughs> going. Wrap up. End. So tell me, so, so, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I mean, all seriousness, I want to attend your workshops because I feel like it's going to make me a better surgeon. I want Hannah, I'm going to make our whole team do it because I want all of us to like, the perspective is like, yes, of course we've seen that. We've thought right. of that. I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years and your learnings, your perspective are, are just, again, so spot on. Like you just get it. Mm-hmm. So tell us some of the, what are some of the workshops mm-hmm. that you have um, available that patients are, might be like, yeah, I, I'm going to sign up yeah. for all of them too. Like, where do yeah. I, how well, do I Well, first of all, this? I would love to come to your team and do some trainings on some of the things we talked about just for your team. Okay. Um, the what I have right now is like you said, how do you scale yourself? I asked that question a couple of years ago, and I created an online course because I spoke at a conference for bariatric patients. There were probably 700 patients there, and I was teaching like basic oh, wow. foundational headwork skills, like the thought comes first and emotional eating. And they were looking at me like, I've never heard this before. 
and it just broke my heart because I was like, wow. how have you never heard this before? And this was pre-COVID. And then people were asking me, um, do you see people virtually? And I was like, no. And then so I started, <laughs> never say no. And then I started thinking yeah, through, well, how do I reach, how can I reach more people with headwork skills? And I created an online course called Foundations and Headwork for Healthy Weight Loss, which I would love to offer um, discount code to all of your listeners. Um, it, just use discount 30. Um, uh, how about I run that through the end of July, maybe for just your people? Okay. Um, so 30% right. off. Wow, what I've done is deal. I've created an online course wow. um, and it's 225 but to your listeners, uh, uh, 30% off. And I'm teaching the foundational headwork skills. And we've kind of talked about all of them today. So the first two um, videos, it's a seven week course, it's self paced. The first one, we're going to talk about squash and stinking thinking and introducing you to cognitive behavioral therapy skills. Second two focused on um, understanding your emotional eating roller coaster, how to exit it. Third one is on setting healthy boundaries. Could your yes be sabotaging your weight loss? And the fourth one is building and using a support team. Um, so those are what we address in the seven videos. So I'd like to invite them to do that. lauragrabo.com. Um, also, you can sign up for my email list. I do specialty classes. That's been a new service I've been offering um, through my practice and teaching people all over virtually. I don't have one going right now. I'm taking some time off in the summer. But I have one that I did on emotional eating where we really took a deep dive into understanding our emotional relationship with food. Um, eight-week class, and another one I do is CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Strategies on the Bariatric Journey, and eight-week pretty intensive CBT training. So those will probably come up again in the fall. Wow, awesome. Awesome. Oh, that is awesome. Discount yeah. 30. Discount 30. Discount 30 if they sign up. Yeah, they just go to lauragrable.com. July. We'll put Thank all of that you. in the show notes as well for anybody that's listening, so you oh, can yeah. check that out. And uh, anywhere else that you yes. want people to find you, I know yeah, you're on so Instagram. Instagram, you're just bariatric.therapist. Would love to um, invite you into my social media community, my online community. Some people are still on Facebook, so I'm on there as well. It's just Laura Grabo, LMSW. And yeah, I would love to connect with people. Oh, I love it. So do another um, sign out on our support yes. group coming up in July. Oh, yeah. So that is on um, Wednesday, July 19th, mm -hmm. and it will be at 7 p.m. Eastern, mm -hmm. and we will have all the links. It is a support group that we want people to come and hear more about you and just get that live interaction and all of that sort of thing. So it'll be at 7 p.m. It'll be a Zoom link. It'll be available um, to all, but you, you'd have to come into the, the Zoom, mm -hmm. and we'll have to let you into that whole thing. But... Be there because Laura is going to be talking about the summer slide, which yes. is, um, it's a hot topic. No, awesome. no doubt. And I think we all need that. That whole summer bodies are made when, well, you, you can't lose right. it in the summer either. Yeah. You know, we have to, right. we have to make sure that we focus on all that. But, um, well, Laura, thank you yes. so, so, so much, thank um, you. for this being awesome. here. This is, this is Honest to God, this is my favorite podcast oh, that we've ever done. You. I mean yes. that. I mean and that. We're I would love to come, come back. back. I'm so, like back. I said, it's still the missing piece, and I'm so passionate to educating as many patients as I can.
Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, you can always follow uh, us as yeah. well. Find us on Instagram at Dr. X Dietitian, um, at Dr. Dovek, at HannahSchuyler.rd, or on our website, DrXDietitian.com. You can sign up. We'll make sure to have a great episode guide with some of this information as well. So sign up so you get that right to your inbox, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks, Bye. guys, for listening. Bye.